People look at asset protection, they think, all right, Clint, you've got a lot of property, you've got a lot of income coming in, therefore you need more protection than I do because I'm just starting out with my first two properties and therefore protection probably isn't at the same level that, that it is for you. And in reality, it's just the opposite. See, because when you get to a place like where, where I'm at now with my portfolio and my investing, I can take on more risk than someone who's just starting out because by taking on more risk, if I take a hit and let's say I lose 10 properties because I put 10 properties in one limited liability company, it doesn't change my lifestyle. That income is uh, de minimis compared to the overall portfolio, what it's generating. Whereas when you look at someone else who's just starting out and they have one, two properties, three properties, you know, they're trying to get build that income up so it can replace what they currently have. When they take a hit, that's going to be a much more dramatic impact in their overall life. Welcome to Generational Wealth MD's podcast on financial freedom through investing in real estate. My name is Param Balatandapani. I'm a mom, radiologist, real estate investor, and mentor to others looking to start or scale their real estate portfolios. Thank you for being here today. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with inspiration, strategies, and insight so that you can stop trading your time for money and live life on your terms. If you love the episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today. I am so excited. We have with us Clint Coons. He's um, an attorney and asset protection expert, founding partner of Anderson Advisors. Many of our members work with Anderson Advisors, and they just love you guys. And you're also a passionate real estate investor, and I'd like to unpack that a little bit also. Thank you for joining us. We're going to talk about asset protection and entity structuring. I'm super excited to get started. Great. Thanks for having me. There's a lot to cover tonight. <laughs> yes. And... Uh, Clint is all set up to use his whiteboard, so we're going to get a lot of education. Okay, um, Clint, I want to start off by talking about your real estate portfolio. I know you, you always say you're a passionate real estate investor. I, I think at some point last year, you were talking about getting to 500 doors, and that was your goal. So have you hit 500, or, or do you have a different goal? No, 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 no. We've, we've hit 500, and uh, you know, with 500 comes more problems, right? <laughs> the opportunity for growth. Yes, so, exactly um, right. Okay, so tell us why you love real estate as an investment vehicle. Well, the thing about real estate is that it allows you to replace your income. People often ask me, well, why do you continue to work? Well, I don't have to work any longer. I mean, when you have a portfolio and, you, and you, you know, you're bringing in $250,000, $300,000 a month just in rental income, that gives you flexibility in life. And then you can choose to do the things that you want to do. And I, and I still continue to enjoy working and producing content and educating people on the benefits of real estate because it's it'll transform your, your life and what you can do not only for yourself, but for, for multiple generations. And that's always been my goal. I, I love what you said. I mean, that's why this community is called Generational Wealth MD. So it's about freedom and it's also about you know, um, creating that generational wealth. So let's get into asset protection. Uh, mm -hmm. The way I look at asset protection is that it needs to be simple, but also needs to be scalable. So it's structured for where you are tomorrow. But with increasing protection comes increasing complexity, increasing costs. And this is whole spectrum from placing your properties in an umbrella insurance under an umbrella insurance policy to creating LLCs. And then there's complexity there all the way up to an irrevocable trust to give you asset protection. When you're working with clients, what factors do you guys look into uh, when you're 
trying to personalize entity structuring. Uh, you know, mo the most important question for most of our members is, you know, do I just have a landlord policy? When do I need to start thinking about LLCs? So, you know, there's a lot baked into what you just asked me. And the way I've always approached it is that people look at asset protection, and they think, all right, Clint, you've got a lot of properties, you've got a lot of income coming in, therefore you need more protection than I do because I'm just starting out with my first two properties and therefore protection probably isn't at the same level that, that it is for you. And in reality, it's just the opposite. See, because when you get to a place like where, where I'm at now with my portfolio and my investing, I can take on more risk than someone who's just starting out because by taking on more risk, if I take a hit and let's say I lose 10 properties because I put 10 properties in one limited liability company, it doesn't change my lifestyle, right? It's not going to change what I drink at wine, what restaurants I go to, because that income is uh, de minimis compared to the overall portfolio, what it's generating. Whereas when you look at someone else who's just starting out and they have one, two properties, three properties, you know, they're trying to get build that income up so it can replace what they currently have. When they take a hit, that's going to be a much more dramatic impact in their overall life. Because if you had three properties and those were, let's say they're in California and you're pulling in $55,000, $60,000 a year, your spouse quit and it's no longer working. Now your spouse is uh, stay at home and is focused on the real estate. You take that 60000 away, that spouse may be having to go back to work. So I tell people it's more important to create the plan when you're first starting out up to about 15, 20 properties. And then from there, when you start to grow, you can add on more risk because one mistake isn't going to have the same impact in your overall financial structure as it will when you just started. I, I like that. It's a it's a perspective I think I'm hearing for the first time. It's more important for you to think about asset protection and energy structuring early on. Um, so that's that's amazing. Um, a lot of people who are starting the program or even within the community um, who are thinking about real estate and are just thinking about getting started, I think one of the barriers I see is they think that they first need to have the entity structuring in place before they even start investing. Uh, and so oftentimes that's like, that's the thing that stops them from starting. So for someone who's saying, well, I don't have an LLC, let me get that started first and then think about investing. Can we talk a little bit about timing? Um, sure. You know, where, when do you start thinking about creating it and the due on sale clause along with that? Yeah. So, so when I sit down with a physician and I'm looking at where they're at, if they don't have any real estate and they say, I need to set up an LLC to protect my property, what property? I don't know where you're going to invest. I mean, if you live in California, are you going to invest in California? Are you going to invest outside the state? Because a lot of people that I know that that live in these, you know, on the West Coast, they tend not to invest on the West Coast just because of the cost. So you end up going to a, a state like, you know, I do a lot of investing in North Carolina because I have a higher cap rate there on my investments. So that's way outside the state. And so you got to make sure that you're creating the entity or you should be creating the structure or that the LLC to hold that property in the state where the property is located. So what I, what I tell people in that position is I said, let's look at where you are right now. Where, where are the threats coming from? And a lot of, I think, individuals don't really appreciate the threats that are out there. They think, all right, well, you know, what's med mal? What's going to happen there? Is it negligence? And I, and I explained to them, that's I don't typically see a lot of cases or, or people that come to me and say, yeah, I got sued for leaving a scalpel in somebody's body. That's not where it comes from. It comes from the people that you hire. They're going to sue you because they're going to allege discrimination or wrongful termination or something like that. And so your threats are from the people that work for you, work around you. And you know, you think insurance is always going to be enough. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not even covered. 
So you want to look at the cash that you want to invest. If it's not already in, a, if you're not taking uh, retirement assets, you're investing with savings and, and equities, then we want to protect those. So I would tell you, set those up in a limited liability company and get that investable cash protected. So you know that you'll have it in case something happens between now and when you find that first deal, we know your cash is always going to be there for the first deal. And then think about estate planning. You should be thinking about putting together a living trust. So those are the things that I typically will focus on and then tell them when you buy your first property, we don't know if you're going to buy for cash, you're going to use a non-QM lender, you're going to use a Q. Uh, so what I'm saying, what the term I'm using here has to do with who's going to finance your property. Is it going to be a Freddie uh, Fannie type of underwriting or is it going to be non-Freddie Fannie, like a community lender? And you brought up due on sale clause. So when you're, depending on the type of lender you're working with, if it was a non-QM lender, which is like a community bank or another third-party lender that isn't using Freddie Fannie underwriting guidelines, many times you can close in an LLC. So I'll tell people, talk to your lender. If you can close in the LLC, great. Let's set the LLC up ahead of time and close in that limited liability company. But if you're using a qualified lender, uh, then the problem is they're not going to allow you, if it's residential real estate, to close in a limited liability company because underwriting guidelines do not permit that. So you have to close in your own name, but that's okay because after you close in your own name, you can transfer it into an LLC. You can deed it into an LLC the next day because in about 2000, I think 17, maybe uh, Freddie was the first one to make the change and then, then Fannie followed. They changed our underwriting guidelines to state that if you buy uh, investment real estate, you have to close in your name, but you're eligible to transfer it into an, a limited liability company. It doesn't violate the due on sale clause. And that's what everybody gets uh, a little concerned about, especially in this environment where interest rates have gone up three points. Uh, you don't want to lose. Let's say you already have rental property. You don't want to be forced into a situation where you have to refi at a, at a much higher rate. So it's fine to do it. And if, and if somebody is a little concerned, I'll often tell them then consider using a land trust, put the property into a land trust, and then put your land trust into the LLC. And that would uh, alleviate those uh, due on sale clause concerns. I just haven't seen them. Uh, I know, you know, people every once in a while you hear about it. Like, I mean, I've heard, I live in Pacific Northwest and people swear that Bigfoot exists up here, but I still haven't seen it yet. So uh, I'm not that worried. Um, um, about the ownership of the LLC that you're transferring something into, suppose the loan is in your name and then, um, do you know, is there anything, are there any guidelines about the ownership interest that you own in the LLC when you are transferring? Does that have anything to do with the deal? That's a cost? great point. So, so this is where people run into problems many times is because let's say you're investing out of state. It's not a one size fits all approach. And you need to know the jurisdiction where you're making the investing to make sure that you're putting together a structure that is not only going to protect you there, that also allows you to transfer the property into that structure without triggering any type of transfer tax. Reassessments aren't a big deal because you just bought the property. So whether they're going to reassess it at a dollar more than what you paid for it. But that comes up when you have someone, a client that's owned property for eight years and it's gone up in value by 75% and they want to put it into a structure. You don't want to trigger something. So you are right. Those are things you have to look at and, and understand the locale and what is required in order to make that transfer. I mean, the, the, the states or the state that it's most problematic for is going to be Pennsylvania. If you're going to invest there, any transfer into a land trust, corporation, LLC, they make it a taxable transfer. So you can solve that problem. You deed your property, but you just don't record it. So you've 
technically you've legally transferred property into the LLC, but you won't trigger the transfer tax because the transfer tax is, is triggered when you record the deed. So my point is there's always a workaround. You know, I, um, I think that's something I find fascinating about uh, how you approach this because you're very creative about anonymity, land trust, and I've heard you speak about this for Florida and even for California. But uh, let's talk about uh, the umbrella LLC structure, right? Mm -hmm. And if so, a lot of our members are considering creating that. Um, and it's often between Wyoming versus Delaware. So what states are best and why create that? And why should someone think about? The, the umbrella structure looks like it's, it's creating a, a base level entity that is designed to provide you with, with anonymity. So what happens many times when people create a limited liability company, let's say they set this up in, in Florida, Florida wants to know who formed it. So if you form it yourself, your name's going to get listed on the filing. They want to know who is the manager or who is the member of this limited liability company. If that's you, then your name's going to be listed on the filing. So you set up your Florida LLC and you have a piece of property inside of it and something goes wrong, which I, I use this oftentimes, this example of a letter one of our clients received. California resident, owns real estate in, in Florida, wake up one morning to find they've been served by a law firm in Florida stating that, oh, somebody was injured on their property. So they were able to track them down because their name was associated with that property. Now, the problem with that is that a lot of attorneys base their cases, these types of cases, on how likely it is the person that they're suing has assets and there's going to be a recovery there. And a lot of people get nervous when they get sued and they're, you know, how much do I need to pay? How do I get out of this? So my strategy or our strategy has always been, hey, I don't want someone to know what you have. And if we can set up a structure where your name's not associated with that asset, then they're not going to know who to go after. And so what we'll do is we'll first start with this base level entity down here, and it could be Wyoming, or, or Delaware. I'll, I'll talk about the differences here in just a moment. It won't be Nevada, but we'll start with that entity. And the reason why we start with a Wyoming entity is because Wyoming doesn't collect any information on the managers or members of the LLC. So you don't have to submit it. All you have to do is submit an address for the LLC, the registered agent, and the name. And that's it. So you can be the manager of your limited liability company. You can be the member, and that information is completely private. Now what we do is after we set up this Wyoming LLC, we'll establish our client's state-specific LLC where the property is located. And what we'll do when we set up this state-specific LLC, we will provide the information for the Wyoming LLC as what we call the member manager. So if somebody looks at this Florida company, say, all right, who owns this Florida LLC? I want to know whether or not this is a, a party that I'm, I, I want to take on, a case I want to take on, they're worth going after. It's going to point them right down to here to Wyoming. And if they looked up the Wyoming LLC, if they were able to find it, they're not going to see any information. They won't know who the ultimate owner is. So they're not going to send that letter to you, certified mail, or serve you with a letter. Hey, we're, we're coming after you personally and your limited liability company. And you, then I've seen this happen so many times where, where clients are, will tell me, I don't understand why they're suing me. Personally, it's my LLC that owns a property. I said, because they can. And what they're trying to do is drive up your, your defense costs. You're going to meet their demands and settle. So I want to take that off the table. And the best way to do that is with anonymity and, and set up that base structure. And then from there, I mean, there's other benefits that come from it as well. Let's say you're, 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 you're married 
Down here, you're a couple and, and you have this structure. You can treat this as, as a partnership for tax purposes, which actually helps you in lending. So your income flows through here. You file a 1065, you get a K-1, and it'll actually help you when you go into borrow on your next deal, or even if you wanted to buy a personal residence. So, so, so there are some ancillary benefits that come from this type of planning. Now, people always ask me, how, how about Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada? Because I've heard about all three of those. Well, you know, when I, when I first got started, we used to set up a lot of entities in Nevada. In fact, that's where I first state we expanded into outside of Washington was Nevada because we're doing so much business there. And Nevada's climate at that time was pretty favorable the way uh, you could establish anonymity, but you had to use a nominee manager. So we would appoint my partner, Toby Mathis, as the manager of all of our clients' LLCs. So on the state filing, you would see Blue Box LLC, AT Mathis, nominee manager, and then he would resign, our clients would take over, and it worked. But it only worked because banks were willing that we had relationships with Chase, Wells Fargo, and B of A, they would open up accounts, but then they started not allowing that any longer. They would say, hey, if we look at Secretary of State, we need to see the client's name listed there. We can't see AT Mathis. And then Nevada uh, raised their fees. So we decided to switch to Wyoming because they'd be making some changes with their laws to make them even stronger from a creditor protection standpoint. People say, well, why didn't you go to Delaware? We don't rule out Delaware. We will use Delaware when we feel that it is necessary to help the clients achieve their objectives. So if you were doing a commercial deal and it's over $10 million, you're going Delaware. You're not going Wyoming. Uh, if, you're, if you're doing a portfolio loan, you'll possibly go with, with Delaware as well. Anything that, that is a, backed by Wall Street is typically going to be Delaware. I mean, I've, I've done it with my own investing on my larger deals. I will use Delaware versus Wyoming because that's what they want. So Wyoming's less expensive, offers you great anonymity, and because they don't collect any information, it doesn't pose a problem for us opening bank accounts. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Can we talk a little bit about charging order protection? Because I mm -hmm. assume that with Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada, you have charging order protection, even if it's a single member LLC. And that was Correct. one of the reasons why we like using those for... Um, yeah, for asset protection, because you're just thinking, most people think inside, right? So if people sue here, I want to make sure that they don't come down and sue me. But you're just as likely to be sued down here. Like, you know, we talked about employee is, is suing you or coworker. Uh, you're, you enter into a lease agreement or there's a mortgage that you took out that you default on. So what, whatever happens, those claims on the outside, what we want to make sure is that what's in the inside of the boxes cannot be attached from outside claims that are claims against me individually. And so what allows us to do that, then the mechanism that everyone talks about that is going to protect you is what is referred to as a charging order, which means that if a, a judgment is levied against this couple for $2 million and they have a property up here that's worth $500,000 and let's say they had another box over here with another property and it's worth a mill and they had $700,000 in cash inside of here, that $2 million judgment will just sit there and the creditor could not force them to distribute these assets so they can get paid. The creditor couldn't take their interest in this blue box in order to satisfy the judgment because the states that you just uh, recognized are states that have what we call strong charging order protections, which essentially boils down to this. This is your entity. You're in control of it. The only time a creditor gets paid is if you take out a distribution to yourself. If you take out a distribution, then you got to pay it to your creditor. 
So it would defy logic. Why would you ever take money out of an LLC if the court told you you have to give it to your creditor? You don't. And that's another aspect of putting this type of plan together is it discourages creditors from saying, you know what, I don't care. Uh, I, I'm going to press for the $5 million, even though I know my, my case isn't worth it, because maybe I'll win and then I'll collect against you. Now they realize, hey, uh, the likelihood of recovery just isn't there. And, and it's not that I'm just saying this because we set up asset protection structures, but I had a client last year, uh, $1.3 million judgment entered against him in California over this ridiculous law change that they'd made where they reclassified employee or independent contractors as employees and allowed you to make it retroactive two years and go back and attorneys could sue business owners. So he has this $1.3 million judgment completely structured by me uh, with anonymity and the whole works. And he went into a debtor's exam and, and he said, before he went in, he goes, what do I do? And I said, tell him everything you have. He said, well, it's going to blow my anonymity. I said, I know, but you have to tell them now. So he explained everything how he was structured all the llcs and in about a third of the way into it they shut off the cameras shut all recording devices they did a sidebar and there were three attorneys here uh representing two two employees uh, they came back and they said we are willing to settle for four hundred thousand dollars and he called me up because what do i do and i said don't take their offer i said that's just the opening offer it's this is a negotiation we'll get them lower and we did and why is that? Because one of the guys even stated, he said, oh, uh, I see you're working with this asset protection group because he told him who he works with. And that got them thinking. They realized this isn't one of those slam dunk cases. We're going to go in and garnish bank accounts, lean properties, and be able to uh, foreclose on ass assets and get paid. What can we do to get paid right away? What, what type of cash can this guy bring to the table? And uh, we'll be happy to walk away. That's why you're doing it. That's just so powerful. Um, along um, along the same lines, now a lot of our members invest in Texas, and mm -hmm. I believe uh, in Texas, if you have a two member LLC, you have charging order protection. How does that work if it's a community property state? How does it work if you have spouses and if you created a two member LLC there? If you're interested in learning how to invest in long term and short term rentals the right way, so you can accelerate to financial independence with the support of mentorship community and vetted investor agents and strong markets across the country, then get on the wait list for the next cohort of Creating Generational Freedom at www.generationalwealthmd.com. You don't have to learn from decades of costly mistakes by yourself. The program is only open for enrollment in the spring and fall each year. In the last six months alone, our members have acquired over $60 million of real estate and more importantly, they're living life and practicing medicine on their terms. You don't have to do it alone. Would it offer the same protection as say a Wyoming LLC? So what I do in Texas, I do the exact same structure. I'll create a, a Texas LLC up here. Many times what I'll do is I'll create what's called a series, Texas series. And I'll have it owned 100% down here by their Wyoming. Mm. And here's the couple down here owning the Wyoming LLC. And then I'll take each property that they acquire in Texas or another state that recognizes this special structure. And I'll put them in these various cells. Now you look at that and you go, well, that looks complicated. It's really not. You've only set up two limited liability companies, but you're afforded the protection as if you created five because of the type of structure that we've elected to use, which is this special series limited liability company where you create these cells and they're treated like independent 
LLCs for asset protection purposes. So if something goes wrong here, that's the only one that's at risk. Everything else stays protected. And you get anonymity at the same time, plus charging order protections because it's Wyoming. So you would still recommend that they have the Wyoming LLC and that's for uh, for anonymity and for charging order protection. You know, every, every person that's ever contacted me and, and said, hey, how did they find me? I'll say, this is how they found you. And, you know, I know what attorneys like to do. They like to shake people down that they perceive to have deep pockets. And so my strategy is, hey, I don't even want to see you get sued. I don't want someone to think that you're worth going after. And the one way I know I can do that is to get your name off of your assets. So if somebody's looking, they can't determine how much you're worth. You know, the, the great example of this is a, a gal named Patrice uh, Coolers. She was uh, one of the members, Black Lives Matters founder, something like that. And there was a, an article written about her by using the money that they had raised for her own personal benefit. She bought real estate in California. Well, mm -hmm. I did a video on my YouTube channel about that. I said, you know, had she just talked to a, an attorney who knew what they were doing, none of this would have ever come up. No one would have been able to assassinate her character over this because had she contacted my firm, I could have structured that in a way in which any reporter would have never been able to find that information out. And so that would, you know, it would, it would probably ended it and it, or it would never even begun is, is what would have happened. So it works if you do it the right way, but mm -hmm. a lot of people don't. So interestingly, we talked about series LLCs. Um, can we talk about the challenges that California investors face, um, especially because California A doesn't recognize series LLCs. And then mm -hmm. if you had series LLCs in other states, then each you would have to pay the FTB for each of those. And so I know there are a lot of creative um, um, you know, strategies uh, for investors who are based out of California. Like, could you, would you, you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. So in California, all right. And this is the moon up here. And let's say you decide to create a company on the moon to mine rocks. Well, California is of the position that this lunar-based limited liability company is actually conducting business in California, and California is entitled to tax it, a minimum of $800. So that's our approach. And the reason I use this extreme example is just to show how extreme the position is that they take when it comes to collecting revenue on individuals who are residents of California. So any LLC that you're a member of, regardless of where that LLC is located, is considered to be conducting business in California if you happen to live there. So for a lot of our clients that we work with in California who invest outside the states, take that Texas series LLC example back here. Assume this was a California resident right here. It, under California law, they would have to file $800 for each entity that I am circling. So that would be what, five entities? So that's $4,000 a year for this structure. And that many times dissuades people from putting together a proper plan because they look at that and they think, I don't want to pay $4,000. The rents just don't justify it. So the, the workaround for California residents is to not have you own an interest in a limited liability company. Because if you own an interest in a limited liability company, then that's going to trigger this. So what we'll do is we'll create what is called a Wyoming Statutory Trust, a WST. A Wyoming Statutory Trust is a business trust, and it's not subject to the franchise tax. So we create this WST, and then the WST will be the sole member of the various limited liability companies you create. So 
you're down here and every and all of these LLCs are held by this. So you do not own an interest in a limited liability company. And if you decide that you want to invest in California, you already hold real estate in California, what we'll do is we'll create a WST, register it in California and put your California real estate inside of it and wrap it back over here. So again, we can eliminate the franchise fees that are associated with typical structures that Californians are, are accustomed to by using this, using a statutory trust. Land trust work as well. You could, if you're in California, you could put property into a land trust and then run it over to a, a, a Wyoming LLC held by a statutory trust. So that statutory trust is a blocker entity that eliminates the $800 problem. Oh, okay, that's um, that's really good to know. I think previously I've heard people talk about DSTs and a Nevada Asset Protection Trust, and so the, it's the first time I'm hearing um, this being mentioned. Um, what about, we have a lot of members who are also buying short-term rentals now, Clint, in Florida. Mm -hmm. Now, Florida is mm -hmm. another state that I wanted to talk about. So what would you recommend for them? Yeah, so if you're going to go to Florida, like, like I said, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So if I was investing in Florida and, and you're using a, QM lender. So you're going to take title in your own name. And let's assume you've got $200,000 in leverage on that property. Well, you've heard me talk about LLCs. This is one of those situations where an LLC may not be the appropriate vehicle for your investment. Because if you were to take this Florida property and put it into a limited liability company, they will tax you on the amount of the debt on the property. So that could be a $1,200 property transfer right there. Some people say, well, I want the asset protection. Great. We can still achieve asset protection. In Florida, we can set up a land trust. And this is the only state that, that allows this type of protection. So I can create a land trust. And a land trust is like your living trust. It's a, it's a grantor trust. Um, there's no tax implicate, federal tax implications here. But if I transfer my property into a land trust, it avoids any tax on the encumbrances associated with that asset. So it's a tax-free transfer. Now, once it's in the land trust, because it's Florida, you have the unique protection in Florida such that if something goes wrong with this property here, you as the beneficiary are protected. So it offers protection from the assets liabilities. Now, what it doesn't do, what the LLC does a really great job at, is also offering you protection from your personal liabilities. That's why in Florida, we'll typically have that, that beneficial interest wrapped up here in a limited liability company to get that, that outside protection that we're, that we're in need of. Um, so, so it's a great strategy for that. You asked me about short-term rentals. I'd still use a land trust for my short-term rentals. The thing about short-term rentals, you treat like everything when we're looking at investment real estate, the structuring is going to be the same depending on where that property is located, whether or not we're using an LLC, a WST series LLC, or a land trust. The issue that comes up for people who invest in short-term rentals is more on the tax side. So one of the best plays that we've helped our physician clients with for the past four years has been to take advantage of the what we, people call the short-term rental loophole which allows you to use bonus depreciation with cost segregation, which is accelerating the depreciation on the property and then getting to take it all in the first year to help reduce your taxes. Because I've met probably eight out of 10 physicians that talk to me. They always say, hey, I wanna be, 
a real estate professional. I get it because you've heard so much about being a real estate professional and how you can write off everything against all your W-2 income. But the problem is, is that the rules to become a real estate professional, I mean, you can't work full time. You got to spend 750 hours a year on a real estate related activity. And once you met that, then you have to materially participate on your rentals, which is another 500 hours to, to, to qualify. Now, some people say, well, I'll have my spouse and they'll try it. And you can go down that road. Or what we found is a, a quicker approach is to say everything about short-term rentals. Because if you turn this into a short-term rental, the rules are different. All you have to do is spend 100 hours, self-manage it more than anyone else on that property. And now I can get you all the same benefits of being a real estate professional. And then sometimes people say, well, I don't want to do this forever. I don't like being a short-term rental. It's like having a new tenant moving into your property every week. And that's, that's a lot of work. I get it. No one says you have to use it be in the short-term rental business forever. You, at least you got to do it for a year, claim your deductions, and you can opt out of it. That has been a technique that a lot of people that are full-time full, full employed, that can't be rep status, will, will gravitate towards but the reason I said that what's key there with the short-term rentals is that it's not so often that you run into, like I have a, a physician in Colorado where his wife has qualified as a real estate professional. He's still practicing full-time. So they picked up two properties they want to use as short-term rentals. And so now I was looking at those properties and what they were doing with them. And I said, well, if we're going to cost seg and, and, and take the bonus depreciation, we're not going to play the short-term rental game here for you. It doesn't work. We need to pull them in under your rep side. So we're going to have to structure it a little different. And so sometimes you may find that if you're talking to me, I would say, all right, we're going to set up a corporation. I'm going to lease your property, your short-term rental property on a long-term lease to the corporation. So you get the benefit of your reps. And then this is going to do the short-term rental activity here because we're not trying to get that benefit that some people want from that short-term rental activity. I know I just dropped a lot of deep information on you, but what I want to tell you is that you really need to analyze it. Too many people just say, oh, short-term rental, great. I'll just go out there and claim it and it'll, and it'll work for me. For probably 75% of the people, that's right, if you meet the test, but there's 25% of the people that are already real estate professionals, that's not going to work for you probably. So we have to devise a different strategy. Well, that was a lot. And so yeah. the introduction of the corporation, um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not something I've heard before, which is interesting. I, I think what I also like is that at Anderson Advisors, you guys do both um, entity structuring and tax planning. So when mm -hmm. they come there, they have the ability to discuss all of this. Now, a lot of our members do love the short-term rental space specifically for what you were talking about, because in year one, you can get upwards of 100% and ROI just because you're able to bonus depreciate and I mean, this year we still have 80%, but that can still be very significant. Um, so the, the corporation is just so that you still get to use it as reps because you're leasing it out. And then the corporation is doing the activity. So it's technically just a, a long-term rental lease for you, which is why Correct. it qualifies under reps. Okay, that makes sense. Wow, that's interesting. While we're talking about that, I also wanted to just like hit upon creating S-Corps and C-Corps to hold real estate? Because that's a question I get quite a bit. And I actually get it from people who go and talk to attorneys and they come back saying, hey, my attorney suggested that I um, create the LLC, but then um, tax it as an S-Corp. And that's the LLC that they're uh, holding their real estate in. What do you have to say about that? 
don't do it. Fire that CPA. Um, well, attorneys, I've heard people say this. Attorney. <laughs> attorneys. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, um, so that's, I mean, all right. So that's a red flag right there. If your attorney tells you to put, to have your S -corp or your LLC treated as an S corp for federal tax purposes, they do not understand what you're doing. Yeah. Too many negative tax ramifications come from uh, using an LLC uh, treated as an S corp uh, for owning any type of appreciated asset. So, so I always tell people, here's a litmus test and you know whether or not the attorney you're working with understands what you're doing or understands real estate. Go in and ask them, um, hey, how would you structure me? I want to do, I want to get involved in house hacking and see what they say. Because I think that a lot of attorneys would imply, take from that statement that that is an illegal activity um, because you're trying to hack into someone's house and they're not going to help you <laughs> form a company to engage in, in hacking activities when it's really just running out of room. And, uh, and so then you get an idea, a sense right then and there that that individual isn't quite up on, on what it is that you're doing and they probably can't offer you the best advice. And, you know, that's so funny, uh, but it's true uh, because mm -hmm. if you don't talk to someone who's um, also a real estate investor or savvy in that space, then the advice you get can be completely wrong. I've spoken to multiple attorneys based in Tennessee and Texas who don't know what a serious LLC is. And so I'm like, wait, um, what is even happening? But um, while we're talking about that, can we also talk about property management LLCs and when you would suggest that someone create that, what the advantage of that would be? So the property management LLC, you know, you're going to have a structure where you have your properties held like this, and you've got this down here, your holding company. And so the question then becomes, when does it make sense for me to maybe run another LLC up here on top to, to manage my, my, my real estate that's held in these various companies right here? Well, the first thing that you want to look at is, are you self-managing? Because if you're using an an out-of-state PM to handle all your properties, it just doesn't make sense uh, for you to set up another management layer. You've already got the management activity being done. You're receiving an owner statement every month uh, with your wire. So why would you put together a structure? But if you're self-managing your properties, because you want, you know, this would be more for someone who wants to be a real estate professional. So they're going to self-manage their own real estate. What I look at is a liability. When I'm managing it, do I'm going to do it in my own name as so my tenants know I'm the owner of the property, or I feel that it would be more beneficial if they didn't know I was the owner and I will I just work for a company that managed the asset. I think that's more advantageous. Uh, so I would use it from that perspective. And the other thing to look at is when you're using a property management company, if you're thinking about tax planning, because you've got some income and you don't want all that income flowing down onto your individual tax return, then you can upstream a management fee, just like you would pay an out-of-state PM or an in-state PM to handle your properties. Let's say you move seven to 10% of the income up there on an annual basis. And if this entity is set up to be treated as a C corporation, now that's 10% of your rental income. It's no longer flowing onto your 1040 that you're paying taxes on. Instead, you're funneled into a C corporation, then you're going to expense it out. So there are some tax advantages, but to make that work right there, it's based on a few assumptions, right? Number one, you have sufficient properties to generate enough income for this entity to make financial sense. And Two, even if you have a lot of properties, 
that there is sufficient income from those properties after you pay the mortgage and the insurance and taxes and expenses that you'll have anything left over uh, of meaningful significance. And so it just really depends on, on where you're at. In fact, I didn't, two years ago, first time ever that I created my first property management company um, to, to, to manage our real estate because where we set it up in, in Winston-Salem, we probably, I don't know, about 400 and some doors out there. And so it, it makes sense for me to, to go and create that company at that point in time. So, so it really, it look, you have to look at the individual. That, that's, uh, that's super helpful. Um, while we're talking about taxes, Clint, I've heard people say my CPA suggested I create an LLC because it's going to help save me taxes. What do you have to say about that in terms of the deductions that people are able to take as real estate investors? The LLC is not going to save you on taxes. What's going to save you on taxes if you're a real estate investor is your activity level with regard to the underlying asset. So if, you're, if you don't qualify as a real estate professional, the LLC is not going to change that. It's not going to magically say, all right, well, it's non-deductible is now deductible. So I never, I always tell people that when you're setting up these structures, they should be, they're going to be tax neutral for the most part um, to you as an individual. They're not going to change how that income hits you, whether or not you did it in your own name or you did it through the LLC. But what I touched on earlier is that when you use a structure like this, these are all be, I'll put D's in the boxes. That means they're disregarded entities. They don't have to file tax returns. And this blue box down here, this Wyoming LLC, you could set that up as a disregarded entity as well. It doesn't have to file a tax return. But we choose to treat this one as a partnership where it does file a tax return. And the tax return that it files is just a pass-through. So, it, so it's not changing the nature of the income at all that's going to hit your 1040. Everything's going to stay the same. It's just changing where that income and where those expenses fall on your 1040. And how does that benefit a real estate investor? Well, it benefits those investors who are looking to build because when you're looking to build and you're borrowing money, you're using you know, what we call OPM, other people's money, bank money to do this, and you're working with someone who is underwriting a loan, which is a qualified mortgage lender, they look at certain aspects of your 1040 to qualify you. And when they're looking at my 1040 and they're, and they're determining what is my income, I want to make sure that I show as much income as I can because there's a debt to income ratio that, you know, ever since Dodd-Frank, we know is a problem that we have to abide by. So how do I keep that income juiced as high as possible? Well, when you own real estate in your own name, or through entities that are disregarded for tax purposes, which is essentially owning them on your own name for, for, from, the, from a 1040 standpoint, that all flows onto your Schedule E, where you put real estate, flows onto page one of that Schedule E. And so if you walked into an underwriter and you gave them your 1040 to qualify for the loan and they, they look at your uh, Schedule E and say, oh, you have $100,000 in rental income, great. So for loan qualification purposes, we're going to count 75,000 of that. What the hell? It's 100,000. You just said it was 100,000. Yeah, yeah, I know, but we can't count uh, the full 100,000. Under our underwriting guidelines, we have to take 25% off for vacancies. Whereas if you set this up as a partnership and you had that same income flow onto your 1040, but rather than show up on page one, 
of your Schedule E, it's going to show up on page two as a line item. It's just one line. Mm-hmm. It'll list $100,000. Now, when you apply for that same loan with the same lender, they're going to give this investor credit for the full $100,000 in income. Okay. That could be the difference one day between getting a deal and not getting a deal because of the debt to income ratio. Because if you're leveraged on a lot of your properties, that's going to start bumping up against that. So you're going to need more of that income to help you qualify. So that's why we treat it as a partnership. And that's the that's... only tax play that is of any significant, well, it's not even a tax play. It's the only uh, tax election that has any meaningful significance, in my opinion, for a real estate investor. And that has to do with borrowing not from a tax standpoint. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really, really important to know. Um, Clint, we talk about all of this, we talked about all these structures, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes people create the LLC and um, they're not really maintaining the corporate veil. So can we talk about why it's important to do that and how someone can um, be intentional about it? Yeah, so I just recently cut a video, it'll be up in a few weeks about you know, biggest mistakes people make in creating LLCs treated as S corporations, um, which you brought up earlier. It's that when when you create an operating agreement, you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of individuals who set up LLCs, they they fail in the execution of the that limited liability company when they draft our operating agreement because they don't realize how important that language is. And you know, if you're never sued or you're never audited, it's never going to matter. And I get it. The likelihood of being sued or, or audited, it's pretty small. But if it does happen, then these documents are going to be scrutinized by someone. And it can then determine whether or not how you leave that audit or how you leave that lawsuit. There was a case in uh, Utah last year where a baker set up an LLC and put all his assets in there and he got sued because he violated a, a um, non-compete agreement. And they pierced his limited liability company because he didn't, he, he was missing three letters. I mean, he, it was just, it's crazy. Had he put in there these three letters, non pro rata, because what happened is the creditors, they got a charging order on his LLC and he said, all right, well, if I take out any money, I got to pay it to my creditors. I'm not going to take out any money. I'm just going to give it all to my wife. Well, they came back and they said, wait a minute here. Uh, by you giving it to your wife, that also counts as if you took out an equal amount. And therefore, you owe us that money. And that was the way in which they were able to get in and break his company. And the reason why is because his operating agreement stated that all distributions had to be pro rata, which means equal. Had he had these other three letters in there, N-O-N, meaning non-pro rata, so you could give your wife all you want and you don't have to take any? They would have lost. The creditors would have never busted his LLC. So I tell people the operating agreements are really important. And then how you operate it as well. You know, it's when, when you put an LLC together and you put your property into it, there's some basic things you're going to, you should just realize you're going to have to do, right? You have to insure the property through the LLC. Um, if you're actively managing that company is going to manage it, then the, collect the rents with the limited liability company, pay the expenses out of there. Or if you're not doing that, you have a, a separate company that's set up acting like a property manager that's doing all that on behalf of the companies, but it shouldn't be going to you personally. And when you start blurring the distinction between what is the business side of your life and what is the personal side of your life, you're opening the door so a potential creditor can can walk through that and try to create havoc in your household. 
And so that's why you want to be very methodical in your approach to creating these entities so that you know that it, when something comes up, like I, you know, I've given you some examples of clients that have been sued, that um, there aren't some loose ends there that they're going to start tugging on and trying to break your structures. Now that's a, that's a very powerful story, too, because uh, you really don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then um, you're, you're always better off doing it right to begin with instead of learning from mistakes. A lot of people want to know how they can reach out to you. So um, why don't you go ahead and tell us what the best way for people to connect with you is? Yeah, go to aba.link forward slash GWMD right there. And then you can uh, schedule a strategy session. Oh, yes. Um, and so guys, um, you can do a free strategy session and um, Clint and his team, they've been generous. They're doing $1,000 off entity structuring or estate planning service for our members. And so you can use that link or you can shoot us an email at generationalwealthmd at gmail.com and we'll connect you with um, Emily or someone in uh, Clint's team. Thank you so much, Clint. This was so much fun. This is the first time I'm hearing about the pocket D. And, and so, like I said, you're very creative about a lot of these strategies, um, very specific to different states. Um, really appreciate your spending the time with us. Thank you for having me.